continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. And welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hey. <laughs> I'm Justin Burke and joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu and our wonderful producer, Dr. Angela Zane. Say hi, Angela. <laughs> hey, y'all. Uh, we're pretty excited tonight to discuss neonatal hyperbilirubinemia with our guests, Dr. Allison Holmes and Dr. Tom Shimotaki. But first, before we get into the content, hey, Chris. Yeah. Can you remind us what we do on the show? Most certainly. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Angela, do you want to tell us who we have today? Yeah, I'm really excited to introduce both our guests. Um, they've both been involved with guiding national standards on how to treat hyperbilirubinemia in newborns, so it's really hot off the press knowledge. Dr. Tom Shimotake is an neonatologist clinician educator and professor of pediatrics at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco, where he is medical director of the intensive care nursery. He has served on California's statewide perinatal care committees and the Northern California Neonatal Consortium, which developed the NCNC hyperbilirubinemia treatment guideline online tool. He is passionate about teaching and improving care for babies everywhere. And we also have with us today Dr. Allison Holmes, Dr. Holmes is an associate professor of pediatrics at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. She also serves as a student affairs dean at Geisel. Her research interests focus on clinical quality and value improvement, particularly in the newborn nursery, in areas such as breastfeeding, jaundice, circumcision, and neonatal abstinence syndrome. Dr. Holmes is co-director of the Academic Pediatric Association's Faculty Development Program and Quality and Safety Scholarship and served on the AAP Hyperbilirubinemia Guidelines Committee from 2015 to 2020. We talked about a general approach to screening and addressing hyperbilirubinemia, avoiding subtherapeutic phototherapy, the major risk factors for congenital bilirubin encephalopathy, and some new evidence on rebound hyperbilirubinemia. Justin, Angela, I think people are going to love this episode. You better believe, believe, believe it. Billy, believe it. <laughs> I couldn't get it out. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the show, Dr. Holmes and Dr. Shimataki. Uh, it's very wonderful to, to have you to the Cribsiders. Wonderful to be here. Happy to be here. And... As we talked about, we, we try to keep things informal and conversational. So for the show, uh, is it okay if we if we call you by your first names, Allison and Tom? Absolutely. Definitely. Thank you so much. We love having you here. And we would love to get to know you better and have our listeners uh, get to know you a little bit better. And so maybe we'll, we'll start with Allison. Can you give us a little bit of a one-liner about yourself and maybe something um, that you do outside of medicine? Great. Sure. I am a pediatric hospitalist. I mostly do newborn medicine at uh, Dartmouth. So I'm at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. And um, I live up in the Northwoods of New Hampshire with a family of six, and we do lots of fun things outdoors. A family? That's a, that's a handful. That's, uh, you guys probably have good uh, family events outdoors. We do. Lots of skiing, snowshoeing, lots of winter things right now. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Tom, how about you? 
Hi, I'm uh, Tom Shimotake. I'm um, a neonatologist uh, at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital here in San Francisco. I am uh, medical director of our intensive care nursery, uh, as we call it, same as a NICU. And uh, I live in the mountains of San Francisco <laughs> at uh, near Twin Peaks. My Wife is one of our faculty neonatologists as well, so I'm literally and figuratively married to neonatology, uh, but have three wonderful kids and uh, um, enjoy living in San Francisco. Excellent. So my favorite question is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? And let's start with Tom on this one. Oh, favorite failures. Well, one that comes to mind um, was uh, one Halloween while I was a resident I decided to come to work dressed as uh, Spider-Man. And um, we actually had a patient that uh, crashed onto ECMO while I was on service in the NICU. And I had to do it dressed as Spider-Man. And I learned I will never, ever wear a Halloween costume to work that I can't get out of very quickly. <laughs> I like that one. Uh, that's, that's impressive. Okay, so my favorite failure. So we have four children. And we were relatively new to the town here. Uh, we moved from another town. We came here with four kids about 10 years ago, and I, I couldn't quite keep straight families or the, the friends. And some of the kids were close in age, and there were similar friends' names. And so I, I brought our youngest daughter to a birthday party and dropped her off and was like, have a good time. And I, we went back two hours later to pick her up. And I was like, well, how was the laser tag party? And she was like, it was fine. And, you know, my husband and I were talking in front. We were driving around. And finally, our oldest daughter from the back seat says, Mommy, you brought Nora to Ian's friend's birthday party. He just spent two hours playing laser tag with Ian's friends. <laughs> so I brought my child to, like, a birthday party for the other child. And she didn't say anything. She just like kept playing laser tag because I couldn't keep the kids or the people straight. And she wasn't even going to tell us. <laughs> she goes with the flow. That's uh, yeah. it's a good like skill. It. So our, our main case that we'll focus on uh, is at Koshok Children's Newborn Nursery. So you're taking care of a new baby, Billy Cadeau. They were born full term after an uncomplicated vaginal delivery and are doing okay with latching for feeding, as to be expected. Uh, but on exam, you notice that their skin looks a little bit yellow, um, but it stops around the nipple line. So I guess first is a really basic big picture question is, why do we see this in newborns and what is high bilirubin? Sure. Jaundice is a very common finding in newborns. Um, babies are born with a high level of fetal hemoglobin, and there's breakdown of hemoglobin products uh, that result in a higher production of bilirubin. Uh, when that bilirubin accumulates and isn't cleared in a, um, a regular, rapid fashion, then, uh, then you're going to start to get clinical signs of jaundice. Sometimes, uh, if this process is delayed, it can become pathologic or problematic, uh, but we have a number of different uh, nomograms and safeguards set in place that we'll go into detail here uh, to try and catch some of these. But the first and foremost uh, sign would be really uh, detecting clinical signs of jaundice by exam. 
You mentioned the the exam. So, you know, we have a healthy baby like this who's born vaginally. Um, what are some things that we're, we're looking for that make us a little bit nervous for jaundice or look uh, nervous for hyperbilirubinemia? And uh, is it something we're looking for every baby? Or how do we start getting our, our spider senses, to your story, where we get worried about uh, hyperbilirubinemia and the complications? Sure. Well, there are a number of maternal risk factors that we look out for, um, and ABO compatibility and RH uh, factors are really important risk factors that we, we follow to see if there's a what we call a setup, that is an incompatibility between the mother and the baby in their antigen-antibody uh, interactions. So uh, if there's a setup or a family history Sometimes those are things that uh, uh, tune us into certain risk factors. Otherwise, by exam, um, we're, we're doing assessments of overall bilirubin, and that may be initially just a general ballpark assessment of uh, sort of a head-to-toe examination of the body. Bilirubin in general follows a progression from head to toe, and you know, with general rules to follow, the head, if the bilirubin uh, jaundice is to the level of the head, maybe five, to the belly button, 10, to the legs, 15, um, and then onto the conjunctiva uh, that starts to become higher. And uh, these are just general clinical pearls that people have used in the past. Other things that you might be looking for would be uh, risks of increased hemolysis, like um, uh, bruising or classically a cephalohematoma, which would be um, a collection of blood um, under the the uh, skull that you are trying to watch out for because it will result in an absorption of hemoglobin or hemoglobin and an elevation of bilirubin. So that's an important thing to be able to detect by exam. Uh, and it's different from a, uh, a baby who has molding of their scalp in that it feels kind of like a water balloon. If you take two fingers and kind of rock them back and forth, they will bounce off rather than kind of being depressed like a, like edema. And so it sounds like you're pretty good at this. You can almost visualize a bilirubin uh, based on exam of, of 6, 10, 12, 14, based on how far down. Is that right? Yeah, this is one of the games that we like to play is you, we have the resident guess what the bilirubin level is before the uh, result comes back. Same with birth weight. Check the baby, guess the baby's nice. birth weight. With time and skill, you actually get better at it. Yeah, what, nice. One of the things I like to talk about with parents, if the baby has some degree of jaundice, is to reassure parents that jaundice is normal. When you have an exclusively breastfeeding baby, 80% of them will have some degree of visible jaundice. This is a very normal finding. I talked to the parents I think explaining fetal hemoglobin might be hard, so I generally talk more about how babies have more red blood cells when they're inside mom than outside mom because they need to have extra red blood cells because they don't have as much oxygen. And then once they're breathing air, they don't need those anymore. And so part of what parents are seeing is just the breakdown of lots of red blood cells. Uh, I sometimes, if they ask why it's yellow, I ask them if they ever had a bad bruise on their shin and ask them to think about the, 
the blood product breaking down so that they realize that this is something normal because um, most babies with visible jaundice really don't have any problems. And so in the, the well baby nursery, just reassuring parents that this is something that's okay and is supposed to happen to all babies is really important. So Allison, one, one question that I have is, are there any specific pitfalls when we're doing our physical exam and trying to evaluate jaundice? Are there certain times when I need to worry about uh, if I think there's jaundice, but it's not really jaundice and is imitating something else or they're, you know, you know, I'm, I'm doing sort of, you know, my estimation of what their, their bilirubin is, but actually because of something else going on, their bilirubin is much higher than one would expect. So I know that there are practices that are different in different nurseries. I actually don't try to do much estimation of jaundice because I'm not sure it's accurate and, and different babies have different risk factors. So in our newborn setting, we have a setting where many families want to go home right after the 24-hour mark um, if they don't have other complications. So part of our process where we are is to measure a first transcutaneous bilirubin right around the 24-hour mark. And so we're going to have that measure, mostly because a lot of families want to go home around then. And so that's our, our discharge one. And just from a workflow perspective, We've just made that part of the practice in, in, in our setting. And the nursing staff knows that if any baby looks visibly jaundiced before 24 hours, that they should just obtain a bilirubin measurement before that time so that we don't miss anyone with issues. To me, one of the bigger things that I've seen and is supported by the literature is being aware when there is an important risk for hyperbilirubinemia, especially due to maternal antibody positivity. That I found that sometimes uh, many people can overlook or pass through when they're looking through maternal labs that when you have a maternal antibody positive, you really need to take a pause and make sure that there's not a risk for a severe hemolytic jaundice that happens early. And so what mothers are you looking for? Can you talk about the blood type and what you mean when you have a positive mm -hmm. Antibody and and then who are they? Are they are you screening everyone or just them? How are you focused your screening? So when we're talking about maternal antibody status, so every mother during her prenatal care should have her blood type and antibody status recorded and in the chart. Uh, it's important for us as pediatricians to review that and understand it. Most of our maternal antibody positive status is due to a mother who's Rh negative and who has received Rogam, and then the antibody should be labeled as a passive anti-D antibody, and we shouldn't be concerned about that because it's due to immunization. I think sometimes we can potentially not see the other reasons for being antibody positive, which could cause um, worse conditions. Hopefully, in most settings, there's really good communication between obstetrics teams and pediatrics teams so that if there's a mother with another type of positive antibody, it's usually one of the minor blood group antigens where we're going to see a positivity that could potentially cause an issue in the baby. But it's important to know um, to watch those babies particularly carefully and to potentially get a sample early, even off the cord blood, if you're really concerned. Well, I have a question. You mentioned the transcutaneous uh, bilirubin. I know in our outpatient setting, we, we don't have that. And I know most inpatient settings do. But can you talk a little bit about the difference between transcutaneous bilirubin versus a serum bilirubin? Are they about the same? Are there things we need to look out for when we're using one or the other? 
So they're really good right now. The transcutaneous measures are, are quite good. They are quite accurate in, I would say, most newborns, particularly at the lower levels of bilirubin. So as long as you're under somewhere around 13 or 14 with the transcutaneous bilirubinometer, it's accurate enough. We also, uh, in our practice guidelines here, say that if you're within two points on the transcutaneous of the line at which you would treat with phototherapy, you should recheck with a serum bilirubin and then anyone over, I can't remember if we're 13 or 14, we've gone back and forth, anyone over 13 or 14, you should check a serum measurement. There is a little bit of a differential um, due to skin pigmentation where there's a small percentage point more of variability in darker skinned infants due to pigmentation. In terms of clinical purposes, you'd pretty much be rechecking those if you were within two points of light level or over 13 anyway in terms of um, anywhere you'd, where you'd really have a clinical concern. So that's worth an awareness, but if you follow strictly the recheck if you're within two or recheck if you were over 13, you're not going to miss a baby who has a significant hyperbilirubinemia. Just going to say an important thing to keep in mind about the uh, transcutaneous billy is that if a baby undergoes phototherapy, then that tool isn't uh, isn't valid. But there actually is some good evidence that after a 24-hour period, you can begin to use that tool again off of phototherapy. Um, it may be worthwhile to have them in the outpatient clinic. It can actually save you a significant amount of waiting and time and lab draws. So um, there are a couple studies out there uh, that it actually does make sense from a value point. If you have numerous babies in your outpatient clinic, that having a transcutaneous monitor might be worthwhile. We should look into this. Maybe this is our, our QI project for our residents. I I like it. I also do want to even take a step back. We're talking about how to measure and, you know, when we're getting worried about interventions. Can I have you each kind of just, how do you explain the concern of hyperbilirubinia? Why are we worried about this? Why do we care if the bilirubin is high? And, uh, you know, how often are, are you guys seeing pernitrous or other complications, I should say? I'm on the, the general pediatric side. We're generally seeing babies where we're telling parents, this is normal because the implications of having a very high bilirubin can be really severe. We're very careful. So we would like to do another check tomorrow. We'd like to add some supplementation so that if your baby drinks some more milk while you're waiting for milk to come in, we don't need to put the baby under phototherapy. We're just going to use some supplementation for 24 hours so that we don't need to stay in the hospital longer. And I try to put it in the frame of, yes, there are some incredibly important risks from very high bilirubin, but where we're intervening in a well baby, well nursery setting is well below those levels so that we're keeping from ever getting there and that we're going to follow the baby carefully so that we don't get to any point where there's problems. And I, uh, I usually explain to parents that bilirubin and jaundice, high bilirubin, is very common in newborns. Uh, as Allison already pointed out, the majority of babies are going to have some degree of uh, jaundice. Uh, we watch out for this because when it gets out of control beyond a certain point, there 
are some risks for some long-term uh, complications. And uh, these can be, um, th th these are related to the bilirubin crossing into the brain space and potentially causing injury. These are obviously very scary conversations, and I'm not leading with this, but if I'm in the NICU and I'm meeting families who are being told that their baby has to undergo exchange transfusion, they need to understand that these risks are, are significant. And though exceedingly rare, they still are possible, and that's why there's an entire system set in place where we have thresholds under which we initiate phototherapy to avoid the potential of this uh, potential need for the next intervention, which is exchange transfusion. And then the exchange transfusion is set to avoid the potential risk for cernicterus, which is basically a, an injury to the basal ganglia uh, that can potentially cause long-term neurologic injuries, including developmental delays and seizures, uh, which can, can be irreversible if, uh, if not caught early. And I, we'll get into some of the treatment decisions and the nomograms and, and threshold levels, but is there a number that uh, is common of when you start worrying about cernicterus? Is that when we're, I imagine phototherapy and even exchange transfusions are often much lower than that? Is there is there a bilirubin that we feel like this is where we start getting dangerous? Well, there is a, a famous uh, paper called Vintophobia, which is fear of twenty, and twenty used to be the previous marker in in the mind of neonatologists. Now I would say it's probably closer to 25 that people think of a threshold for need for exchange. But when you're at that 25 threshold, certainly that's that's something that gets our attention as neonatologists. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the Vigentophobia paper came out a while ago, and if if no if people listening haven't read it, you should go read it because it's incredibly entertaining. Uh, one of the most entertaining uh, papers ever published in the, the journal Pediatrics. Uh, so when we look at the larger population-based studies, while we definitely should be concerned, particularly at levels when we get into the higher twenties. Um, that we need to be talking with neonatologists and thinking about exchange. One should probably not panic for a 41-week, five-day-old baby who comes into the clinic who has a bilirubin of um, 21 and whose weight is okay and who's feeding well and doesn't have any hemolytic risk factors. You're going to watch that baby. You might use phototherapy. You might not in certain cases at 21, at five days, but a baby like that is probably going to be okay because a baby that's already five days old probably isn't having significant hemolysis. The papers that we look at in terms of who really suffers from this devastating neurological injury are really done well by the research group that has worked out of UCSF and with Kaiser Permanente in Northern California that have published a whole series of papers showing that the newborns that unfortunately develop chronic bilirubin encephalopathy have a average bilirubin that is closer to 40. Those are the babies that really end up having disease. So it doesn't mean don't worry until you get to 40. Yes, you should be really concerned and talking with neonatology about how to best manage the patient when you get into the, the mid-20s. But the babies that really end up with problems are the ones who end up have bilirubins that are much higher. 
and there usually is an underlying pathologic risk factor. So G6PD deficiency is a very important risk factor there that oftentimes it's not a, a matter of uh, not treating. It's that the number actually continues to rise in, in the setting of certain risk factors that cause ongoing hemolysis. And uh, that's why that's such an important risk factor to identify when you're considering these treatment nomograms. Tom, now G6PD, how, how common do we, is it and how often do we really have to worry about it? And what types of babies do we need to be more vigilant about looking at that? Well, classically, G6PD uh, is a deficiency that's carried in certain populations, darker skin populations. It is now essentially a global concern, though, and um, by identifying simply uh, ethnic categories isn't, uh, isn't really adequate when we are trying to assess this risk. If we have babies who become symptomatic and reach their thresholds, they're going to be getting these screening tests uh, to determine if they carry uh, this deficiency gene or others because um, it can occur in, um, in many different populations uh, and it's hard to predict and categorize that this is only going to happen, for instance, in a, in a dark-skinned individual. Um, but it does make up about 30% or more of connectors cases, so it's a significant risk factor for ongoing hemolysis. That 30% is a, a great pearl, which I did not realize how significant of a risk factor that is. It's good to know. I have to ask, when, whenever, as a resident, I got a bilirubin, really whatever it was or whatever hour of life, I very much relied on some of these risk calculators that reminded me what these underlying pathological risk factors were, the, the G6PD, ABO, incompatibility, um, those two I remembered, but they have the, the, the risk stratification. And so one of the ones that I know I've used a lot, the resident here use a lot, is Billy Tool. Is there a, a specific nomogram that you are using, uh, both of you? And I know that there's been studies, including from the UCSF, on the change in total serum bilirubin. I, I know there's a lot of different predictors now. So for, for us as residents or as attendants, when we get a bilirubin, what should we do with it? What's, where should we plug it in? What should we know to, to use this as a risk stratification tool? And maybe Allison, we'll start with you and then, and then Tom to see if you have other uh, differences in, in practice. So, you know, I think until there, there's going to be a new Billy Ribbon guideline coming out of the AAP, hopefully within this year. I think until that time, if a practice group decides to use Billy Tool and to use it accurately and consistently, I think that's fine because then you have a standard that you're all using together. It does a nice job of combining the risk factors for hyperbilirubinemia, the risk factors for neurotoxicity, and the AAP thresholds in a way that's easy to use. The biggest problem that I have found with Billy Tool is actually the human error in which humans assign the baby to the wrong risk category, either because they don't notice the risk factor for hemolysis or they miscategorize the gestational age. And so I think if a group uses that tool consistently, you're not going to run into any problems. There are newer data since, you know, the, the, the underpinnings of that tool are from the late 90s and early 2000s. There's now 
a significant amount more data that can help us refine the calculations with a lot more babies included. So I think we'll probably have better tools once those studies are incorporated into a newer guideline. But I think it's fine. I think the most important thing is for a group to be consistent and to make sure that you categorize the baby correctly before you make decisions. Yeah. And, uh, we, our group actually was part of something called the Northern California Neonatal Consortium, NCNC. You can, you can Google it and uh, look for the NCNC Billy Rubin tool. As an alternative, we met as a group and uh, to Allison's point, the AAP guidelines that Billy tool is based upon were from that paper from 2004. Uh, so a lot of uh, information in, uh, about jaundice incidents Carnicterous incidents have come out since then. We know that carnicterous is a very, very rare event, uh, especially at the uh, lower thresholds of uh, initiating exchange transfusion, but still a risk. However, we felt that based upon new information since 2004, we could adjust some of those targets. So specifically, when to initiate phototherapy, um, we felt that in low-risk situations, so the term infant with no other risk factors for uh, um, neurotoxicity like G6PD, et cetera, that we would actually raise that threshold by two milligrams per deciliter. And then for the babies who are 35 weeks um, to 38 weeks, that they would be raised by one milligram per deciliter. And that babies who were 35 weeks and had risk factors, there would be no change in that threshold. So we were just basically raising the threshold a little bit uh, on those babies that we thought were lower risk. And then for the exchange transfusion, raising that threshold for low-risk babies by 5 milligrams per deciliter, as I said, that, that number used to be 20 and uh, now is sort of 25-ish. But for the low-risk infants, uh, raising it by 5 milligrams per deciliter and high-risk infants, we wouldn't change that. And then that would be age-adjusted, uh, depending on the gestational age and the time at which you were testing the baby, you could um, predict, um, you, you would be guided on your intervention. And therefore, it's a, it provides a little bit more room uh, to observe a baby, to try some of the other interventions, uh, see if there's an effect before initiating the phototherapy, or to see if there's an effect of phototherapy before the intervention of exchange transfusion, which can also uh, each of those interventions does carry some risk. So um, in consideration of that, trying to give it that extra little space. Speaking of algorithms to calculate bilirubin and thinking about how to calculate rebound bilirubin, I feel there's lots of calculators out there. There did seem to be a paper that came out recently this year um, about this idea of delta TSB and predicting bilirubin after discharge. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that paper. Sure. Uh, that's the paper by Mike Kuznowitz and Tom Newman that was published in Pediatrics in May. This is actually um, a study that came out of the Northern California Kaiser Permanente database, uh, which is a large database and, and um, has generated things like the sepsis calculator that have been uh, become really helpful for clinicians. What uh, this group did was actually look at about 148,000 births that were babies that were uh, 35 weeks or greater gestational age uh, who did not require phototherapy before discharge. 
And looking at those babies, they want they wanted to see how many of those babies required phototherapy after discharge and what were the risk factors. The way we would typically predict that would be using the Bhutani nomograms and the AAP guidelines from 2004 and the update in 2009. Uh, but what this paper looked at was a value called the Delta TSP. And what that is, is basically the bilirubin value for the baby at the time of discharge. Again, these are babies who didn't require phototherapy compared to what the AAP threshold for phototherapy would have been at that time. And that delta number is just a single digit that uh, they looked at to see how predictive it would be for the need for phototherapy later. They also looked at a third model called the Delta TSP Plus, which is the Delta TSP plus a couple other factors um, that were uh, potentially informative. So things like the rate of rise while the baby was in the unit, when was the level checked, what type of feeding did the baby get, formula or breastfeeding, which are traditionally things we think of as relating to um, bilirubin metabolism potentially. And what they found was actually uh, the Bhutami nomogram did do its job well, as, uh, as, as we know, but that that single value of Delta TSP alone actually did a better job of predicting the need for phototherapy and then the Delta TSP plus even more so. So what this implies is that there could be a single value that you could plug into a, a calculator tool that incorporates things like age of the baby, gestational age, um, DAT or Coombs status, so hemolytic risk factors uh, that are kind of baked into the AAP uh, phototherapy guidelines already and uh, are, are considered in this the derivation of this delta TSP value. And with that one number, guide your uh, management about follow-up and predicting uh, need for re retesting, et cetera. So, you know, with this uh, modern age of um, calculators that are automatically generating information for us, like in Apex or uh, Epic, uh, excuse me, Epic kind of tools, these uh, uh, electronic medical record machines that can automatically import comparison nomograms with this one value, you could potentially um, help clinicians make some decisions about follow-up. But that's sort of the future implications of this paper. Yeah, got it. So, um, so in terms of the clinical scenario, so it sounds like the Billy tool and NCNC algorithms would be ones that you use at the moment you either have a cutaneous or a serum bilirubin, and you would put the number in to determine if your patient needs intervention. And then something like the rebound bilirubin would be, you know, should we measure bilirubin after phototherapy and um, what's the likelihood of needing further intervention? So for a patient like Billy in our scenario, when would I use something like a Delta TSB? Would it be while the infant is still in the um, inpatient or at the PCP or somewhere in between? Sure. So this is actually one of the strengths of this paper is that uh, the outcome measures are more practical than a, an outcome of having a bilirubin greater than the 95th percentile. Basically, it can tell you if this baby is likely to reach a phototherapy treatment threshold, not an exchange threshold, uh, within 24, 48 hours. And so you might choose to do a sooner follow-up in, in babies who um, you predict would have a higher, a higher risk. Okay. So 
at the time of discharge, the patient might not need anything, but you're saying you would use this calculator, look at the differences in serum bilirubin and say, okay, based on this, you might need to come follow up in X hours because we feel like you may need phototherapy. Yes, that's right. They, uh, it might uh, either prompt you to have a, a sooner follow-up or if the baby qualifies for uh, home phototherapy, that might be arranged. So it might open up other, other options for treatment or follow-up that would raise your threshold of concern or uh, observation and monitoring. So great. So, you know, um, Billy, as I noted, had a little bit of a difficulty latching in the beginning, and he continues to struggle with it, but his parents really, really want to continue just breastfeeding. Um, Mom feels like her milk is going to come in any minute now. Can you talk a bit about why you recommend supplementation to help decrease bilirubin? I think it really depends on the situation. And this is another place where I spend a lot of time talking with parents about what's normal. So a lot of parents in the first 24 hours may be really concerned that the baby's not latching. What I tell parents, and this is for our AGA term newborn, that the first 24 hours are practice, that lots of babies don't do much feeding in the first 24 hours. They often have a quiet period and then they'll pick up and start eating more uh, vigorously after that, just so people don't worry. Because I find the more that the parents worry, the harder it'll be to feed the baby. So just normalizing that the first 24 hours is, is a practice time. Now, of course, if you have a small for gestational age baby or a late preterm baby, you're going to be a little more careful and maybe make an intervention sooner for reasons related to bilirubin or for potential hypoglycemia. You know, you want to watch carefully for feeding. Oftentimes, we're in the outpatient setting by the time we're at the day three or four. You know, is the weight down more than where they should be on the weight nomogram, the the newt nomogram that we use for normal weight loss? Is the milk not coming in yet? Are we out at day four and day five and we don't really have an onset of lactogenesis too? And we're at a bilirubin that might need phototherapy within the next 24 hours. Those are the kinds of places where we would talk about what I'd like to put into context as what would be a transient supplementation. I speak about it as a medical intervention where we are going to use milk of some sort to help get the baby through a period of, of potential jaundice that would lead it back into the hospital. And then the goal is to resume, resume exclusive breastfeeding when we can get to that point of lactation support. So that's my framework around how we talk about lactation. I know we call it breastfeeding jaundice. It's really, though, a starvation jaundice. If it was a formula-fed baby and the baby wasn't feeding formula sufficiently, it would also have the same kind of problems with jaundice. So I don't really like the terminology of attributing that kind of lack of feeding jaundice to breastfeeding specifically. I'll never say it again. I, I like starvation. I feel like uh, that does give a better explanation of, of what's actually going on. And so I think that that's uh, a helpful way to frame it. And so it sounds, you know, if we have this uh, low risk, uh, average for a gestational child who has a slightly elevated bilirubin, I think clinically, we, we typically attribute it to a starvation jaundice. We maybe talk about supplementation. Um, when do you start worrying? Is it uh, if the and let's say for a, a starvation jaundiced baby, let's say we're we're not uh, overly concerned about 
a we have no known GSITS PD deficiency running in the family, so there's nothing that is stri- uh, standing out as this being a high risk child. When do you take the next steps to continue following the Billy Rubin? Um, when when do you repeat the Billy Rubin and why? And maybe Tom, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, if uh, if a baby is being treated with phototherapy and fails to come down or continues to rise, then you really have to consider the possibility of other uh, pathologic factors, and that should warrant a further workup. Um, there are uh, a number of conditions that we uh, we look out for in addition to these hemolytic jaundice diseases like G6PD deficiency, or I should just say conditions, but also there may be some other um, conditions that are inherent to the liver. We talk about conjugated versus unconjugated bilirubin. When we're checking transcutaneous, when we're checking um, serum bili, often we're checking a total serum bili, which includes a conjugated and an unconjugated portion. And for intents and purposes, it's also known as direct and indirect. Um, So the total serum bili is the combination of the two. The conjugated portion which is uh, conjugated in the liver and excreted in bile and uh, into the gut, causes your stool to be brown. That actually should always be a small, less than 20% of the total. So usually it gets our attention when that number is even higher than one milligram per deciliter. But certainly if it's more than 20% of the total, so if you have a, a total uh, of 10 and your direct is 2, that is abnormal and that really gets our attention. There can be a number of different causes of that. Um, Many of them are related to uh, obstruction of excretion. A condition called biliary atresia is a blockage of excretion of bile into the intestine. That really does need to be identified early on because the interventions that are available for that are are time limited. So um, while the actual total number of bilirubin related to the direct conjugated bili fraction may not be as high as we see with some of these other hemolytic diseases, it's obviously something we want to be paying attention to. And phototherapy doesn't help conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, by the way. it's uh, uh, It results in a condition called bronze baby because it actually causes a kind of staining of the skin, but doesn't um, doesn't isn't therapeutic. So I, I guess my big question is how how does phototherapy work? Allison, do you want to answer that? Uh, I'll try, but this is a better Tom question okay. for me. But uh, phototherapy works by helping to conjugate the bilirubin to a hydroxyl group so that it can be excreted more effectively. In my world, we're mostly trying to keep the babies from getting to a phototherapy level or doing really short. Um, runs of phototherapy only when we need to. Anything to add, Tom? Uh, yeah. Phototherapy converts bilirubin into a water-soluble compound called lumirubin, and it can be excreted in the urine. So it's one of our easiest therapies, if you will, in the nursery because it doesn't involve sticking. It doesn't involve uh, a tube into the body or anything like that. It's indirect. However, there are some some concerns with phototherapy, which we can talk about. It's not an entirely benign intervention, but it is indirect, and it's uh, it, it acts through the skin to essentially solubilize uh, and promote excretion of the bilirubin products. 
I do want to ask, so it just seems like you're just giving light. So like, what are some bad things that can happen to that? Well, great question. There uh, have been a number of concerns raised with phototherapy, uh, especially in uh, smaller babies. But some of these concerns were initially related to risks of potential cancers. There were uh, some um, uh, associations made with certain types of leukemia, ALL, that uh, were thought to be increased risk. Recent data actually shows that that uh, risk is didn't bear out on, uh, on on review. There was a question about potential associations with solid tumors uh, beyond the age of four in in uh, out of Quebec, but now that actually also recently was reviewed as well, and they feel um, that risk is is lower, but it is has always been in the background. The stronger association is potentially an association with phototherapy and risk of uh, epilepsy or seizure. Uh, there are a number of uh, factors that go into epilepsy. Epilepsy is far more common than um, than uh, cancers in, in babies. Uh, and there is a, a paper looking at that risk of phototherapy associated with epilepsy and even uh, adjusting for bilirubin values. Phototherapy in and of itself appears to have some degree of associated risk with uh, with epilepsy. So that's always a concern. And in general, people have looked at the use of phototherapy in premature babies. Premature babies, when you're born at 24 weeks, 26 weeks, you're supposed to be inside mom's womb in total darkness for at least another three months. The idea of coming out and exposing that child to a bank of lights um, in the first couple of days of life, which is very common for extremely premature babies, just doesn't really, uh, and to think that that would be benign doesn't really fit uh, um, any either physiologic or, or sort of logical models. So people have looked at trying to reduce the amount of phototherapy exposed through cycling phototherapy in premature babies. Uh, and there's uh, a good study looking at cycling phototherapy for 15 minutes for every hour versus continuous phototherapy, and they were able to reduce the amount of phototherapy by over half. And yet the differences in the total peak bilirubin values were were uh, less than one apart, so 7.1 versus 6.5 or something like that in that ballpark. So um, not significant differences in the uh, total bilirubin value, but significant reductions in the amount of time that phototherapy is exposed to the premature infant. Yeah, I'd say there's some other harms on the family side as well. So when phototherapy is used, there are some studies with harder outcomes, both from back, these were studies done in the 1980s, 1990s, and in Yale showing the parents were much more concerned about their babies if they went under phototherapy. They were more likely to stop breastfeeding. They were more likely to be worried that their baby was sick. They were more likely to bring them back to the doctor for multiple visits. And those even held up in more um, recent times in the Kaiser Permanente studies showing that, you know, if you had a baby under phototherapy, apart from the visits related to phototherapy, the parents were more likely to be concerned about the baby, that something was wrong with them, and bring them back to extra clinic visits, plus just the extra stress and time of being in the hospital and, you know, when we step back out of our doctor's shoes and look at what a baby under phototherapy looks like with its little 
blindfold on and all that stuff that just doesn't look like the healthy baby that you are expecting. And so it's, it's stressful for families. So I've been really interested in, and when I joined the Billy Ribbon Guideline Committee, many people had goals for the committee, and I didn't want to repeat those. And I said, I would really like to come, have us come to a stronger statement that we really shouldn't do sub-threshold phototherapy, because I don't think sub-threshold phototherapy is really doing anything good as long as you have good follow-up. A lot of people, there were some studies maybe a decade ago that there was a significant trend for people to initiate phototherapy today to prevent phototherapy tomorrow. So, okay, I'll put the baby under lights tonight so that I can still send the baby home tomorrow. Well, maybe in the long run, that's not the best way to do things. Maybe it's okay to have the baby stay in the hospital and be with the parents longer and work on feeding and and not potentially place a harmful condition, either harmful in terms of a seizure risk or a making the parents feel like something's wrong with their baby risk. Maybe it's better to just wait and see and not start phototherapy until you're actually at a threshold that people agree with. There have been some nice studies showing that we have a very high number needed to treat. If we place babies under sub-threshold phototherapy, you're actually not preventing that many. It's a lot of babies to treat to prevent one baby from being over threshold the next day. And when you think about it from a bigger picture, that's probably not worth it. Um, I have two things. One, one's a comment and one's another question that's more basic. So first comment is I, I, I do think that I think recently at one of our Choosing Wisely campaigns, uh, using uh, phototherapy for sub-threshold uh, treatment is uh, definitely one of those new Choosing Wisely campaigns that we're, they're, they're trying to put out there for us to not do. Um, one question I have is sort of more more basic, and uh, can um, you know Tom or Allison, whoever wants to answer this, can you explain a little bit about phototherapy just in general, and just for some of our audience who may not have seen it or or witnessed it? Are these special types of bulbs with wavelengths, or and I've heard like you know one two banks, you know they're Billy blankets. Like there's all sorts of different types of things when we think about phototherapy. Can you discuss that a little bit? Tom can do the science. I'm going to say it's as much blue wavelength light as you can get to as much surface area of the baby as possible so that you can do it for as short a time as possible so that they can go home. But Tom can give you the the scientific part of that. Sure. So phototherapy is one of the ways that we can reduce the amount of bilirubin in the circulation of the baby without... Um, going through the liver. What phototherapy allows is for the bilirubin that's circulating through the subcutaneous tissue of the skin, um, light that penetrates the skin uh, is absorbed by the uh, bilirubin molecules and photoisomerizes into a soluble form, a water-soluble form that can be excreted in urine or bile without needing to go through the liver for conjugation. So this is a way of reducing the amount of circulating bilirubin that cause potential harm for babies. It's a very uh, easy-to-administer therapy that uh, looks like disco lights in the uh, in the NICU, where you see these blue lights shining on babies. It uh, doesn't require any kind of uh, needles or uh, insertions, but it is, uh, it is a therapy that, if done properly... Um, needs to be, uh, there need to be a few considerations to make sure that it's done uh, correctly. A couple of things to really think about for phototherapy are 
the wavelength of the light that's used and the intensity of that light that's reaching the baby. So the wavelength of light, it looks like these blue tanning lights, but they're actually not ultraviolet range lights. Um, phototherapy is very specifically targeted for this blue light range between 460 nanometers and 490 nanometers, whereas ultraviolet is less than 400 nanometers. So for instance, tanning beds, those lights are like in the 320 to 400 range of wavelength. And those would not be appropriate for babies because they can cause some thermal injury. But um, phototherapy for bilirubin uh, is best in this narrow range of 460 nanometers and a little bit longer to 490 because the longer the wavelength, the better the penetration into the skin. And this, again, allows these uh, the circulating bilirubin to become uh, converted to a water-soluble form called lumirubin that can be excreted in urine or bile. I love the analogy of the disco. I feel like <laughs> at our newborn nursery, they talk often about the babies going to the beach because they have the little eye covers. But it sounds like you wouldn't recommend something like um, putting your infant into direct sunlight. Right. So direct sunlight is going to be a, a mix of a lot of different wavelengths, some of which are going to work on bilirubin, but will also contain some of those dangerous uh, ultraviolet rays and therefore um, could cause thermal injury. If you were to use a bilirubin light on a, a baby in an isolate, that would probably just bounce off of the uh, the plastic covering. But um, when you have your baby exposed to uh, natural light outside, uh, none of that is filtered and uh, could inadvertently harm the baby. So we actually, each type of phototherapy device has a specific way of measuring the intensity of the light. So I mentioned the the wavelength, but also the intensity is measured with a special uh, radiometer. And based on the distance of the, the device from the baby, you're going to get a higher or lower intensity. Also, the amount of skin that the baby is exposed uh, is going to improve the effectiveness of that bilirubin, of that phototherapy. So it's best if the baby is just in a diaper um, under the lights. Uh, and the the eye shades are really just to protect the babies from the the blue light. The real harm for uh, the eyes is is rare. So that that uh, measurement of the irradiance or intensity of the light is something that is different for each device. Phototherapy lamps used to be things like fluorescent light bulbs and halogen lamps, which of course generate some heat. But now, with modern phototherapy devices, they're um, LED and uh, fiber optic. So they don't generate that heat and they're um, a little safer to use. And uh, But that means that each device has its own guidance on how to measure the uh, the intensity. And so you just have to follow those guidelines. I'm kind of looking at phototherapy almost in a new light after talking uh, to each of you. And so I want you to, to teach me if I'm, I'm now looking at it incorrectly. What Rather than a patient who's having starvation jaundice going under the light so that we don't hit them at it almost sounds like the phototherapy is a way to judge if they have an underlying hemolytic disorder. If we put them on phototherapy at a lightable level of, of 14 or so, or depending on their age, and they immediately come down, it sounds like we attribute this to starvation, jaundice, we encourage them. But if it plateaus or goes up, now we start thinking we need to to look more, almost like it's a, inter, a, 
an intervention that is also helpful in the diagnosis. Is that how uh, people smarter than me think of phototherapy, of kind of screening out the more dangerous um, things? Or, nope, Justin, just stick to the nomogram and let the let the specialist figure this out. Um, I think it's it could be that sometimes. I think it can be other things as well. They're the most common reason that otherwise seemingly normal babies who seem to be feeding just fine, who end up under phototherapy, is Gilbert's. Um, it's a really common genetic condition. It's present in about 1% of the population. It means people get a little bit jaundiced when they get tired or stressed when they're adults. And babies who have it have jaundice that kind of goes high, but usually not dangerously high and needs phototherapy and maybe doesn't come down as well. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're hitting into discovering a baby who's got dangerous hemolysis. In my mind, the babies that have dangerous hemolysis fall into two categories. There's the babies that have dangerous hemolysis early that is usually from a maternal antibody or a very severe RH or ABO incompatibility, you're going to pick that up in the newborn nursery. The thing about G6PD that Tom's going to know more than I do is that it's really unpredictable. So those are the babies that we see in the newborn nursery. They're there with us for a day, two days. Their screening bilirubin is normal. We don't necessarily see any risk factors. They're feeding fine. And from my understanding, they can go home and a day or two later come back with bilirubin that's really high. And that's why G6PD has become the thing that people are most concerned about now. We have better measurement, quality control, screening, follow-up, etc. That's the one where the hemolysis comes later and worries us more. The, the other causes of hemolysis we would also see relatively early, uh, things like hereditary spherocytosis, other um, red cell membrane defects. You should see those from the beginning. But G6PD is different. My understanding is because their babies may or may not encounter some type of oxidative stress that will lead them to have the hemolysis. But Tom can tell us more about that. Yeah. Um I think the uh, concern with G6PD and with any of the other pathologic causes can actually be uh, uh, a hard thing to detect early if uh, a baby isn't becoming symptomatic. Um, and, and sometimes with some of these conditions, that might not be immediately apparent in the newborn period. So the pediatricians may be detecting these and working them up, referring them to us. But if the rate of rise is something that is another thing we look at, it suggests that there's rapid hemolysis. People have looked at the use of n-tidal carbon monoxide as well as a marker of hemolysis. Um, I think that in theory, that makes sense because uh, hemo the bilirubin comes from the breakdown of hemoglobin from hemoxygenase to biliverdin and carbon monoxide. So it's one of the byproducts of hemolysis. However, really the important thing is the actual bilirubin value in the baby um, that takes into account um, all of the different factors. And um, when when those levels exceed those thresholds, that's when it comes to our attention and we would do those workups. I think I would like to hear, I, you might not have an answer for this, but kind of like physical exam or other ways um, for like darker skin babies with jaundice. Like if you can't see it or it doesn't look like we learn, what other tips do you have? 
I'm I'm happy to take that one on. Uh, honestly, I think it's incredibly difficult. And so I think when people think that maybe they can assess jaundice in a highly pigmented baby, um, I think it's really hard. I think to see scleral icterus, you don't always see it. I think looking at nail beds is hard to do. I'm really glad that the screening Billy ribbons at 24 hours are really reliable, and I think it's important to pay attention to those and to remember that although the transcutaneous Billy ribbon is slightly less accurate in your darker pigmented infants, you're not going to miss a baby that has a significant issue with hyperbilirubinemia by using that as an initial screening tool. And so I think being mindful to do the pre-discharge screening, particularly thinking about it around the 24-hour mark, is a really good safety measure because I'm not actually sure that the physical exam findings are are terribly reliable um, as much as we would like to think we might get good at that. Yeah. So it sounds like in this case, equitable care would really be the screening at 24 hours and just making sure that a you know an infant doesn't leave the nursery without the congenital heart check, the hearing screen, and a bilirubin screen. Maybe following up on the routine screening for bilirubin in patients that are at 24 hours, and let's say uh, the patient does go home very early on and has a follow-up um, with their pediatrician, when we're in the outpatient setting, when should the general pediatrician check a follow-up bilirubin? Um, are there specific risk factors where they need to be checking t- uh, for possible readmission to phototherapy? Is it only um, on physical exam? Or, or let's say I just if I have a patient in the outpatient setting, when should I be checking uh, a follow-up bilirubin? So there is a 2009 follow-up to the 2004 guideline that has a nice tree where you can figure out when babies should get follow-ups. I do try to follow that in terms of determining time to follow-up, whether the baby needs a next-day follow-up versus a two- to three-day follow-up. I think at that point, you can make decisions in the outpatient setting because often once the baby has gone home for a couple days, you're seeing them back at a point, well, the milk has come in and the weight does look okay. And there's lots of pees and poops and, you know, that feeding is going well and there's there's not a concern um, from that point of view. Or you can see the opposite, which generally, hopefully, is happening not as much of the time, but the milk isn't in, the baby isn't latching well, the weight isn't good. And I think in any setting, when you're, if that's happening and, and the weight isn't good and, and the latch isn't good and the intake isn't good, that's a nice time where it's good to have one of those transcutaneous meters in clinic to make sure that you're not missing a baby who might end up in trouble. Great. This is perfect. And then so I think we'll probably edit this and bring it back. But um, going back to let's say we have a patient who is placed on phototherapy because they have an elevated bilirubin, no red flags or gross hemolytic anemias that we're aware of, how are we monitoring this patient on phototherapy? How often are we are we rechecking bilirubins? When do we feel like it's time to bring them off of it? How do we kind of monitor and maintain phototherapy? And Tom, maybe I'll go to you on this one. Yeah, we would be uh, rechecking depending on the uh, on the level and the rate of rise. If there are risk factors, it might be as frequently as every four hours. But usually, if there aren't uh, those risk factors, um, it, it might uh, your intervals 
would be uh, stretched out a little bit longer. Um, and those are set in the guidelines. But we're always examining the babies as well, looking for uh, other signs of bilirubin encephalopathy. And this might be signs of uh, lethargy or hypotonia, uh, a poor suck, something like that. That can be associated with other things, obviously, sepsis in a newborn, early onset sepsis, uh, or late onset sepsis after the first 24, 48 hours. But those are also associated with risks of elevated bilirubin, both conjugated and unconjugated, and can progress. If if those findings uh, are associated with hemolysis, and that rate of rise is very high, your signs of acute bilirubin encephalopathy may prompt you to actually consider that uh, exchange transfusion sooner. Those thresholds are, are set, but uh, the physical exam may also prompt that intervention because your results are maybe lagging from your assessments. Um, and so if it comes to that point, the uh, exchange transfusions are really aimed at removing bilirubin and circulating antibodies from the baby's uh, uh, circulation uh, and replacing it with donor red blood cells. Uh, and we continue that until we replace the baby's blood volume twice, uh, thus known as a double volume exchange transfusion. In addition, we're often using um, IVIG therapy to bind up some of that bilirubin, and that may be something that you can do to temporize prior to getting a baby to a place where they can get an exchange transfusion. And then there's also some evidence that providing albumin prior to the exchange transfusion can also uh, increase the amount of bilirubin removal. Uh, so the number of things that we can, interventions that we'll think about once we get to that point um, where it's reached a threshold of of intervention requiring exchange transfusion. Now, Tom, you previously said that exchange transfusions are pretty rare. And I do have a little PTSD from my time in residency where we had to do it on one of our babies that I was taking care of. Um, how often should we be worried that something like this would be happening? And you know, I, I know you were talking about when you were, you were also talking about this when you were giving counseling to to parents, like, is there a good way we can sort of estimate that? Yeah, I... Um... I don't have the actual uh, um, percentages. We in our unit uh, uh, do see this uh, occasionally, a couple times a year. I know this is uh, that's not very precise. Um, it's it's more rare than it used to be prior to the days of Rogam and uh, um, the uh, Rh uh, isoimmunization. So when Rh disease and hemolytic disease of the newborn was uh, was common, that was one of the common procedures of the NICU. And since that time, we actually haven't been doing it that often. It's a skill set that we have to kind of resurrect when we have a baby and we have a little uh, uh, trifold poster board that we put out to remind everybody how the tubing all goes together. But it is still something that we see from time to time. And as we said, G6PD deficiency is fairly common in the community and can be a risk factor for rapid hemolysis and it can occur after a baby goes home and develops some uh, some stress that results in more rapid hemolysis. So it's something that we, we see in babies occasionally from the outside that come in through the ED or if they're identified early in the nursery, um, even within our own populations. And so it, it is still something that we see and uh, um, we need to still maintain that skill set. 
maybe one more question before we kind of wrap up. And I remember as a inpatient um, when a, a kid was started on phototherapy. So fortunately, let's say we have our Billy does not need this uh, intensive exchange transfusion, but he started on phototherapy and does quite well. What's the typical threshold to take him off the phototherapy? Do we need to keep him off phototherapy for 12 hours and keep the family for another day to make sure that uh, Billy Rubin stays down? Or what is the uh, thought process on predicting if he will have a rebound hyperbilirubinemia? Is that something we need to be worried about? Yeah, it's interesting to me that in the guidelines, they really didn't address this very much. I mean, they did address that uh, even in the 2004 guideline that there was no reason to stay as an inpatient for rebound. And they did some kind of rough calculations of, you know, you should make sure the baby's below a certain round number before you let them go home. I think we're going to get to better findings now. Again, work out of UCSF led by Pearl Chang. She did some really nice work with two different um, mathematical models. One was three-factor and one was two-factor and built a calculator where you could show, you know, how to take the baby off of phototherapy. Really elegant. Also, from a practical standpoint, I think a lot of people might not use calculators like that unless there's fancy and accessible as Billy tool, maybe. Um, so, you know, the other way that people like to think about this are potentially having the baby be a certain number of points below the hour-specific light level, also based on risk factors. So two points below light level if the baby is 38 weeks and over with no risk factors, maybe a certain number of more points below light level if the baby is 37 weeks or late preterm or has a hemolytic risk factor, maybe you'd like them to be a little bit lower. I don't think anybody at this point is saying that a baby needs to stay in the hospital once you get to a certain threshold below that at that point they can go home and just make sure that they have follow-up the next day. We've talked a lot about the uh, screening for hyperbilirubinemia, diagnosis, and some of the challenges, some of the causes of hyperbilirubinemia and the treatment and complications of treatment and, and advanced treatments, and even some of the new papers who uh, which have guided new interventions and new um, prediction models for risk. With all this, you know, for our listeners who are at all levels, what did you think, each of you think are the main take-home points for trainees, for attendings, for practitioners to know about hyperbilirubinemia and that can really inform their practice going forward? If I had three things to say, one would be, be really careful about maternal antibody status. Make sure that you don't miss something that's important that could cause a baby to have really severe, devastating, early hemolytic um, hyperbilirubinemia that you might miss. And then the other ones would be on the more cautionary over-treatment ends, um, like the updated pediatric hospital medicine choosing wisely guidelines state. I would be incredibly reserved in terms of the use of sub-threshold phototherapy. Um, we probably, with our current guidelines and even with the ones coming up, sub-threshold phototherapy probably doesn't have a, a place in our practice. And then third, I'd be careful about odd cases. You know, it's it's good to be familiar with the usual cases that have to do with feeding or a minor amount of hemolysis due to an EBO incompatibility. 
but just to have an eye out for the cases that aren't falling into a pattern and to when you have a, bili- a baby with a bilirubin that's in the mid-20s or a rate of rise that's uncommon or just a set of risk factors that don't seem to be adding up to you to have a good relationship with your neonatology colleagues and be um, happy to consult with them if you just have something that's falling outside of the normal pattern. Those are excellent uh, tips. I would agree with all of those and uh, would love to have Allison as a colleague as well. I would say I would add to that that uh, um, bilirubin is very common and, and so we tend to uh, get accustomed to it, but I would uh, be uh, have a system of approach, uh, which I think these nomograms are uh, are useful for because they provide a consistent approach uh, for for all babies and uh, allow you to escalate um, when certain thresholds are met, regardless of the underlying risk factors, and then allow you to proceed with other workups. So I think having a system in place that everybody agrees with and understands uh, um, is really important. I think also um, develop your exam skills. I think that's a, a great thing for residents. You know, don't miss the cephalohematoma on the scalp or some other uh, pieces of the exam that are going to be explanations for uh, the findings, the hyperbilly findings. And then keep an open mind. Uh, what Allison was saying about sometimes you're surprised by things. I think that uh, there can be twists in clinical presentations. Uh, and so um, be on the lookout for these things and use all the information at your disposal. Look at the maternal antibody uh, risk factors and Make sure that you're uh, you're uh, staying open to all these different uh, potential variations of clinical presentation. Excellent. I think these are, are great points. I think this was a very helpful episode with pearls talking about guidelines, new evidence, and appreciate your uh, expert insights into the uh, diagnosis, approach, and treatment of. Uh, the very common hyperbilirubinemia that we see um, in clinic, inpatient, it kind of broads all uh, outpatient, inpatient, and intensive care settings. So we are grateful for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And thank you for joining us on The Cribsiders. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice change and knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Angela Zane. Thank you to our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Have a wonderful night. I have been Justin Lee Burke. This has been Angela Zane. And this has been Chris, the Chi Man Chi. Thank you and good night and good morning and afternoon and all the other time zones. See ya. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.